The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all. Good Good morning, morning, Scott. Scott. Say, Don. Hey, Gary. so, Don, uh, you know, still a lot of chatter about affordability and interest rates and, and, and people are, uh, are are genuinely feeling quite anxious about all this stuff. You know, and rightfully so. And when you had these you know, people locking up their money for three, four and five years at under two percent and they're starting to realize that maybe these higher interest rates are going to stick around a little longer and their maturity date or the renewal date of their mortgage is coming up and their mortgage payment literally could be doubling or tripling in some cases when that maturity happens. And we're already feeling that already for certain clients, younger clients particularly. With um, and, and you're starting to see visa bills starting to rack up because they're hoping they can just ride the storm. So, and I know Gary, um, you know, his segment today is going to actually talk about real estate versus equity investments. Yeah, Don, thanks. And that your, your intro certainly ties into some of the things that I wanted to touch on. And, you know, we, we know that there are people who are adamant about real estate investing and whether it's, uh, it's rental properties, uh, investment properties, whatever the case may be. Uh, we've had conversations over the years many times too about balance and diversification when it comes to an investment portfolio. But I thought it would be, uh, it would be interesting just to, to really zero in on, on what goes on with the, the housing market uh, versus the the uh, investment industry, the the equity investment industry over time, because there's a you know there's a whole generation of people, uh, particularly first time home buyers, uh, that have really only seen what they've seen in terms of where interest rates are. To Don's point, and um, and also uh, they've only seen a, a housing market that has done nothing but go up. Yes, uh- up and up until the the present time. Right. And so, you know, things are things are kind of hovering right now. And, uh, you know, we don't know uh, with these interest rates, of course, what's going to happen specifically, you know, but the but the in, in the Canadian real estate market, you know, any sort of prediction about a housing crash in the last decade just hasn't hasn't been topical. We haven't we haven't read much about that over the years, as we both all of us, uh, I'm sure, can recall. Uh, that was something that uh, from time to time over the decades was certainly front and center as far as to a discussion point. Yeah, they're actually calling it the Canadian housing bubble. And that was and it just kept getting bigger, this bubble. It never popped. So, yeah, you know, this is kind of now. Is it popping? Is it starting to go down? Well, you know, that's what yeah. we're seeing a little bit now. Yeah. And we think back, you know, I mean, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but we certainly learn a lot from history in terms of what what could happen again based on trends and you know think back to the to the uh, mid 1980s mid to late 1980s the housing market just just took off there was new construction everywhere and uh and that was that was after of course interest rates went there were record highs of interest rates in the early 80s and we got into 1990 and for about four years the housing market either remain the same or actually went down. 
And, uh, and, and if any of us haven't experienced that or bear, you know, bore witness to that at the time, and we've only really been watching the housing market for say the last 10, 12 years, that wouldn't really be something that we would, we would think about in terms of the, the possibility of, of that happening. But uh, you know, whether or not real estate's a better long-term investment or, or the stock market for part of a portfolio is, is, is a better long-term investment, um, you know, it all depends on what, what one's perspective is. But you know, there, there's data that shows that investing in a, in a, in a broad-based uh, series of equities can potentially outperform real estate uh, over time due to several factors. You know, we've, we've always talked about diversification. We've talked about liquidity, which you know, liquidity is king because we don't have liquidity in our, in our, our properties that we own per se, you know, historical performance, uh, you know, cost efficiency and, and, and market access. And there was a, an analysis, a study done by RBC, Global Asset Management. And uh, what was concluded that the S&P TSX composite total return index outperformed several major real estate or Canadian real estate markets, as well as the national average over the 25 year period from January 1st, 1997 to December 31st, 2021. And the, the same index also outperformed the national average home price on a one year, three year, five year and 10 year basis uh, as of December 31st. So that is no doubt very surprising, I'm sure to a lot of listeners that that would be the case because you know when when markets go down when the equity markets go down it's it's front and center news and oftentimes people it's not a singular thing like the housing market the housing market goes down because uh you know demand and supply it's pretty straightforward and then interest rates enter into the equation as well you know, yes and it's interesting you mentioned about history not repeating itself i actually beg to differ there gary i think greed always repeats itself and it doesn't matter it could be you know going back to the 2000s it was the dot-com boom and then you get into currently was a real estate boom particularly in the gta and all those numbers you mentioned were canadian housing prices um but yes from 2010 the 12 years it took 12 years to break even in toronto and hamilton area from the 1990 recession to 2002, there was a long time. Nobody liked real estate then. Then it started to go up. So then you look at the latest 20-year average has done quite well. But, you know, I, I speaking with other people that they're thinking, well, let's just say real estate only goes up by 10%. And I looked at the person and said, you're making it sound like that's just the norm. We have seen many differences and we it actually can go down. Well, sure enough, uh, you know, that, in, that individual got over leveraged in real estate because he started to buy real estate as an investor. And right now, 30% of homes are owned by invest as investment properties. And that's also adding more risk to the overall portfolio. So lots of things in the real estate area. And it's kind of good every so often for it to kind of settle down and, and really for affordability, it really helps the younger people when things kind of settle down too. And let's yeah. be honest. And let's be honest. Sorry to interrupt, Gary, but okay. this has been a projected problem for 10, 20 years. And the really smart people uh, way back when thought, you know what, we're going to we're going to eventually get to a shortage here. And that is what is, I, I think, uh, propelled uh, the middle class into investing in real estate. It's because, you know, if you don't build enough, of course, they're all going to go up in price. But what's going on now? a boom. So, you know, hopefully that will alleviate a lot of the stress, but I think the majority of people that are getting involved now are, are it's beyond 
you know, the sweet spot, sort of say. And, and you know, everybody's just aware that there's a housing shortage and that's what's creating this buzz around the industry. Yeah. And, and I, you know, and I'm not uh, for a minute suggesting that investing in real estate is, is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. I think if it's a, if it's a, if real estate is a small component of an overall portfolio, it certainly mm-hmm. uh, can make sense. And, you know, five to 10% is, is kind of the, the range that, that, you know, that we suggest in general, but, you know, we have to look at, at, at costs and compare. And I think, you know, when we're looking at the real estate market, obviously there's, there's ongoing upkeep, there's, there's taxes, there's all kinds of things that come into play in terms of expenses. And, uh, you know, and even when you, when you purchase a home, you've got the land transfer tax issue, which, you know, on a, on a million dollar property, uh, it's, it's 16, about 16,500 that, that you have to pay when you acquire a property. Uh, of course, when you sell those properties, if people are really, you know, seriously into real estate, you know, you're looking at four to 5% real estate fees. And when I look at this and I, uh, and, and from my point of view, I say, okay, in the investment world, in terms of equity investments, you know, you're looking at somewhere between one and 2% in terms of what your actual, your actual fees are on an annualized basis. And, and with that, of course, you've got ongoing advice and planning and, uh, and support and so on. So there's, there's a, a lot of things to factor in. And of course, when we, we look at real estate and we've, we've already you know, highlighted this, that um, you know, it can be very costly for people. And that's, it is very costly for people in that situation now that are carrying mortgages because of what interest rates have done. And that would have been very difficult to plan for five years ago. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and then, and then there's the lack of liquidity. And I know a lot of people don't think about that. I've, I've talked about diversification and liquidity, but liquidity is, is really important. When you have uh, an investment portfolio, you have the ability to make some changes. When you have a property, the location of that property, the surrounding area, uh, the condition, the ongoing condition of that property and so on are all factors that present potential risks. And, and uh, if it's a rental property, um, all you have to do is talk to half a dozen uh, individuals who, who have rental properties, and they will tell you that, that finding good tenants and tenants who will continue to generate that revenue that, of course, uh, investments provide uh, is, is very questionable at times. And tenants, uh, tenants are people. And it's, you know, people, there's always issues with for, you know, there's problems. Yep. And it's so funny, even the best tenants. And we just had a situation where a friend of ours was renting out his property. And within 12 hours of the new tenants, his, his, his fence was on fire. And next thing you know, you have an insurance company has to pay for it, etc. But it's just another layer of responsibility. Now, again, just happened to be the barbecue was too close to the fence, etc. And they put the fire out, no big deal. But bottom line is, there's always something. It's not just. It's not like just having money and a and a very safe bank account earning five percent currently, where there's nobody to worry about. There's people to deal with, and when there's people, errors or or things could happen. And it's just a layer that you probably don't want to deal with. But it sounds so good when everybody says, "Oh yeah, you just rent it out. You get X amount of dollars per month, and it's a simple thing." But it doesn't work quite as easy as as that normal. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and of course, on an ongoing basis, we look at risk when it comes to any sort of investment. And when you own a property, 
you know, the, the element of risk is very singular as far as that, that value of that property and interest rates and then the ongoing condition of that property. In the equity investment world, you can make changes. You can turn on a dime when, it, when it's prudent, when it makes sense, when opportunities present themselves. You can take gains from a, a certain investment and move it into something that has been underperforming. And, and you've got lots of, uh, lots of opportunities to change the, the structure of your investment. But when you own a property, you own that property. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. Find out more at donfox.net. Call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. All right, Don, you want to talk about retirement costs versus your current income. Yes. And uh, you know what? It, you know, a great segment on the real estate that Gary just went through. And yes, property is often thought as the last resort investment or downsizing their property to retire. And so it's, it is an investment. We are to have absolutely nothing against investing. But we do have, we're very pro-diversification. And what we've seen in the last 20 years is a gravitation to people because the returns have been very good around here in the last, particularly in the GT, as I mentioned, gravitating towards real estate as an investment and owning one, two or three properties and uh, without really thinking about risk, because risk doesn't exist when things are just going up. Risk doesn't exist when interest rates are 2% and, and tenants are, okay, are, are doing okay. But all of a sudden, then there's all the other risks start happening. Real estate prices start to drop. Um, that puts pressure. Interest rates start to rise. That puts pressure on it. Um, liquidity evaporates. There was a lineup at the doors to buy houses only a year or so ago, and they're bidding wars. Now you're seeing a lot less of that. So again, there's all, all these things came to fruition on the real estate side, which isn't a big deal if you're properly diversified. And if you have other assets elsewhere, you can then lean on those assets to give yourself a, a, a retirement income. So last week we were talking about, you know, your game plan for retirement and really it was more the concept of retirement, bringing you kind of from this, you know, mindset of uh, palm trees and cruises, which you mainly see on TV, et cetera, to actually pen to paper. And that's not nearly exciting as the, the pull and these kind of, it, it's got a sex appeal retirement. I'm going to retire. It's awesome. I'm doing this. And it's this vision of what is this going to be? But then once that's all done and it's honeymoon stage, it says, oh, geez, what are we doing now? Um, do we have enough money? Well, hopefully that is not what you've done. And you've well, you've planned out your retirement. You've gone, you put pen to paper and made sure it makes sense. So there's a lot of uh, kind of rules of thumb. I absolutely detest rules of thumb. But I will go through some of these right now. And one of them is uh, some people say, well, you only need 70% of your current monthly expenses in retirement. And I 
they're saying most people are more frugal and can live on far less. And they, and some even can maybe go 60%. And you're starting to see this, um, you know, bumper stickers saying we're spending our kids inheritance, that type of thing. You know, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, great to think, but I often think, okay, are you really going to live on 70%? You know, what are you cutting out now? If you're working, you are contributing to Canada pension plan and likely EI if you're, if you're an employee. So those expenses are gone. Um, there is other expenses, perhaps if maybe you paid off a lot of debts. Well, that's a big one. And those expenses are down. But a lot of people are now entering retirement and they're not debt free. Um, and I would suggest it's actually uh, at least 50%. So you got to continue to carry that debt. And if they're not debt, and if they are debt free, well, they may go back into debt, say with a new car or a lease payment. So you got to put that into the whole equation. So under this whole idea, when could you retire? Well, if you had to guess the average, average retirement age, I'll give you a little quiz here, Gary and, Gary and uh, Scott. What do you think the average retirement age is in Canada right now? I'll say 62. Okay. And Gary? You mean the first retirement or the <laughs> second? <laughs> I, yeah. would say, I, would say, uh, I would say around there, maybe 64. Wow. Well, you're actually getting a little closer, Gary. It's 64 and a half. Hmm. So what and- do I win, Don? Yeah, well, you just you kudos and uh, pat on the back. <laughs> Good for you. Um, the, the the thinking here is all this all this freedom fifty five was always talked about and and yeah, so whatever these, happened to that? I, I'm still waiting for that to happen. I'm I'm I, I was supposed to happen to me a few years ago. What happened? Yeah, yeah, it was very nice. It was a great slogan. Great again, marketing what, strategy, right? It was fantastic marketing strategy. What they didn't do is actually say, well, I can't live on this. Um, and if, weirdly enough, it was an insurance policy. And how are you going to fund retirement through an insurance policy? It's beyond me. It, but it was a sexy slogan for retirement. Freedom 55. It just r- comes off your lips. It's awesome. But how many people could actually afford it? And so not many. It turns out, um, you know, self-employed people actually do work longer. People in the private workforce work longer. People in public um, with, you know, larger pensions. You know, and because they've contributed to these pensions too, don't let me think that for a second that it's, they don't deserve it, but they've been contributing off their pay for many, many years to this public pension, which was matched, and they're retiring early, such as teachers and, you know, firefighters, et cetera, nurses. So on average, when you take the whole melting pot together, you're at 64 and a half, which is pretty darn close to the Canada Pension Plan maximum, which is at 65. So going back to that rule of 70%, if you're making 100000 a year um, near just before retirement, it, it assumes you're going to need about 70000 a year in retirement income. And they even think it might be 60% a year if you had no mortgage or kids that were, call it, empty, your empty nesters. They're out of there. So is it true? Well, like I've, we've often talked about, really, we need to do a financial plan. So the government programs are actually quite good. And Canada Pension Plan is about $1,306 per month. So a lot of people think, oh, good, I'm going to get $1,306. Well, that's if you're at the maximum. Most Canadians did not contribute the maximum. Either their incomes were too low, or they took time off work, or they went to school longer at the end of the day, or they retired earlier. Um, At the end of the day, they did not contribute enough years, so they didn't get the maximum. But let's say you did, and you got $1,306 a month. 
that's a pretty good lump sum. That's $15,679 a year. And, you know, if, if you're at $100,000 income earner, you say you can only live on 70%. Well, there's a good chunk of it right there. Old day security is, is about $700 a month now, $698.60. And that's another $8,300 per year. So adding the two together, you're, you're sitting there at about $24,000 just out of the government's. And that's one spouse. Okay, if you have two working spouses contributing in the max, but again, that's utopia. That's pretty rare. Um, you would get the old age security, mind you, um, if you're a Canadian resident for 40 years. So you would get a lot of that. So you can make up a lot of this 70% just on government benefits. Now, um, also at age 75, that old age security bumps up by 10%. That was the latest um, initiate that just started last year, actually. And so these numbers... Um, also, interesting enough, if you wait to 70, it makes a huge difference. Canada Pension Plan goes from 15,600 a year to 22,000 a year, 42% increase by waiting until 70. Now, does it make sense for you? Again, this is where you got to look at the cost benefit analysis of that and where you're going to get the extra funds from. Um, by the way, also old age security would go up by 36% if you wait till 70. And that, and that would go from about, uh, you know, so what's that workout? 768 to nine, um, basically 10% more at the end of the day. So all how it all it there might be a benefit to wait until 70. So the good thing about government benefits, though, they are indexed. And this is one of the biggest areas I I find a shortfall in most of the planning software that I've I've come across is they don't index things or their default is like two and a half, three percent. Well, that was all fine until last year. Inflation was, on average for the year, 6.7%. Well, nobody thought about that. And, you know, these are all the ones. These, what about this? Oh, we didn't take that into account. I actually looked over a financial plan that uh, a competitor had done, and he was missing a number of things. One was Canada Pension Plan was at the max. Well, they weren't even close because they were going to retire 58. So that didn't make sense. They didn't use a very good inflation factor. They never bought a new car. And it worked out that they would fail about age 85. So, which is the other part, longevity. A lot of the new plans saying, well, you retire at 65, we got you to 85, all is good. Well, that's not necessarily the case because, uh, you know, out of a thousand people, most are making it to 75 and about half are making it to 89 out of a thousand. Right now, if, if a male will retire today. So you have to plan for longevity. Go ahead. Yeah, Don, you know what? I'm just thinking as you're, as you're talking there, so many people uh, look ahead to retirement and then ultimately approach retirement with all these stereotypes in their mind, different theories about what it will be like. They make different assumptions, and you, you alluded to that earlier. And, and the reality of things, too, and this, this speaks to the importance of customized planning that you're, you're talking about, uh, each person has their own inflation rate. Every single household has their own inflation rate once they're retired, of course, except for the essentials, except for the things that we all have to, you know, food, energy costs, and so on. But, but uh, you know, based on how they choose to live, and they don't always choose to live based on those initial stereotypes that they, so that's why it's so important for us to customize the, re the retirement plan before, during, and after retirement, so that so that it reflects specifically what is is in the best interests of of those individuals. 
Yeah, I often think of a retirement plan is to a certain extent is a retirement guess because you are putting all the factors that you know of right now and those factors change. So if you don't update this plan on a regular basis, then it could be far off. And, and one of the one, like we mentioned earlier, the, the one plan is most of these plans seem to have a default to 80, age 85. Retired 65 and at 85. No problem. It's great. Well, actually, the exact numbers for a thousand men, not women, the, the numbers would be even you know, higher for women. Out of a thousand men retiring this year at age 65, 918 will make it to 75. Yeah. Okay. So not a big surprise there, but more than half make it to 89. And so you can often think, and you look at all you do is look at the obituaries. It's, it's rare you see people under 80. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's, and, I remember, and, and to talk about how outdated some of that thinking can be, I remember my parents when they were still alive saying, we, we, we didn't think we'd live till 85. We only planned till 85. And, <laughs> exactly. and, and I think that was when they were 88. So, you know, yes, right. uh, and, and that was a plan that would have been, you know, constructed a long time ago. And they often think, well, my parents only lived to this length of time. And well, what was their lifestyle? And did they smoke and et cetera? And where'd they come from? Where did they live? There's so many factors. So people are living longer and longevity risk is the biggest risk. Our biggest concern is people who run out of money at retirement. And that's certainly... Um, what we as planners, we want to make sure you, we can avoid. So this is where rules of thumb take place. And again, the, this idea of living off 70%, and this was a German study done. They actually followed these people. Yes, they were able to live off 70% of their, their previous income. But what they didn't say is how much money do they have? Okay. And how many people are spending 100% or more than 100%? And it's often because they have more money. So money and income or bigger pensions allow for larger, a better lifestyle of retirement. So we, we're big, we're big believers of not wanting you to underlive. Okay, we don't we don't want you to save all your money and then be you know end up passing away and have a large amount of money. So we want you to have fun. So maximizing fun while you're alive, but it is difficult. So we do want to plan this using all these factors. So other things that come into play for retirement income isn't necessarily retirement income. It's government credits, because now that you're 65, you get the you qualify for the age credit, um, your pension credit. You may in which, by the way, the age credit is about fourteen hundred and sixty dollars a year in Ontario. You would probably qualify for the pension credit if you have RSPs that convert to RIFs or if you're part of a pension. And the disability credit often is a factor. And I'm going to discuss this a little further in the show. But it's a it's an area that a lot of seniors are missing the boat on, and it's two thousand and forty dollars a year. On top of all these credits, once you retire, and particularly once you're over sixty five, there's income splitting opportunities that can also save a lot of money from a retirement as a household income. What are you making as a household versus what do you actually get to keep? Doesn't work out so well if you're a high income earner previous to retirement but there may be some great ways to income split otherwise. So other rules of thumb, there's this 4% withdrawal method where basically you take your money and you take 4% and you spend it and you increase that by four, by inflation every year. It works out great. Um, that's still probably pretty fair. Some are saying it should be 5% or more. Um, I, I'd probably err on the conservative side. And if there is one rule of thumb I, I think is okay, is this 4% rule. Because if you had a, say, a million dollars, okay, 
or 4% of that's 40,000 a year. And then you get inflation from that. So if you have 5% inflation, that goes up to 42,000 the next year and so on. And it has, it has stood the test of time. And now that interest rates are higher, that, that income portion of your portfolio is actually earning about 4% or greater now versus a few years ago where interest rates were under 2%. And it was starting to really, people were starting to crit criticize that 4% rule. So when you're all done, you take a look at what your actual um, lifestyle going to be and versus what's the perceived. So the perceived is what you think it's going to be. And the actual is, well, you got to track this. Not fun to track. Grab those credit card statements. Go through it all. Go through the numbers. Ideally, it's with a financial planner because I find the money's too emotional. They'll say, well, it was a little high this month, my hydro bill, but it's probably lower next month. People are very good at rationalizing. Well, we took a big trip last, last year, but, you know, it was after COVID. We're just doing a little catch up. At the end of the day, there's all these reasons people are spending money. And it's got to come from somewhere. And it usually comes from the pot, the retirement pot. So from our standpoint, it's nice to have that third party, party intermediary that's looking over all your data, looking at your lifestyle. Because often I find people forget things too. And the things that they don't know that we don't know. Will your kids come back? Will inflation be higher? Will there be a massive expense? We don't know these things will happen. But you know what? Life gets in the way of a good retirement plan, and that's what you need a financial planner for. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. Find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. Find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Gary, you want to talk about transparency. I think we need a little of that today. Yeah, transparency mm -hmm. is a thing that we we talk and hear a lot about in, in different walks of life and, of course, the importance of it. Uh, you know, I was, uh, I was actually uh, speaking with some clients recently, and they were going through the process of selling their home or putting their home up for sale. And uh, they had interviewed four different real estate agents. Wow. And uh, so I was just curious. I said to them, so how did you make your decision? What was your decision based on? And they said, well, it was based on what, what we view as, as transparency. They said that um, three of the agents just told them what their fees were and said, if, if we list your home, some said 5%, some said they'll do it for 4% kind of thing, but, but no other details, no, no reference to how that's broken down um, between buying and selling agents and so on, and, and kind of just hard and fast answers. This is what we charge without really getting into, this is why we charge what we charge. This is what we do for you in order to charge that. And uh, so the, the person that they settled on actually sat down, didn't, didn't spend 20 or 30 minutes wasting their time talking about uh, 
why the fees, why that person was charging the fees that they charged, but they, they did give a very, uh, they said a very effective overview as to, as to how they arrive at that. So all the, all the things that we do behind the scenes in order to, uh, to successfully sell your house for you. Now, um, a lot of us are probably thinking, okay, the way the market's been, so, you know, you're, you're charging what for two or three days work. Uh, I didn't even have a sign on my lawn yet. And so, you know, <laughs> I get, I get that perspective too, but, um, but they were, they were quite impressed from a professional standpoint that, that, that individual took the time. So of course it got me thinking and, and, and as it relates to our industry, and, you know, we certainly from a regulatory standpoint, uh, disclosure of the fees are critical and we're, we're bound by, by our duty to, you know, to uh, explain those things and so on. But I know that uh, there are advisors in the industry who, you know, they, they, might, they might just skim over it really quickly, like some of those real estate agents did, says, well, this is, this is what it's costing you without really going into any sort of, of detail about uh, about why that does make sense based on based on the value and you know I know that when uh, when we're meeting with clients with new clients and and so on um, you know we, we we really know that it's important to, to talk through um, all the value added things in terms of a value proposition and, and how they can benefit um, and how that will affect their bottom line uh, along the way and so on and uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it's important, uh, you know, and this, these are really things I think that, that listeners can think about when they're sitting down with a new advisor is really, you know, is what is being explained to me, is it, are they, are they doing it in a, in a fairly simplistic way? So, uh, you know, the old saying, I don't need to know how to make the watch. I need to know what time it is. Right. So, <laughs> yes. So, you know, keeping it simple and, and avoid acronyms and all those things and just really explain, okay, this is the fee structure. And this is what you get for that. This is what I provide to you. And, um, you know, we, we shouldn't be going into excessive detail that, that really isn't, isn't that relevant, but just a very clear understanding, uh, which I know that, you know, that this is what we, we certainly attempt to do. And if we can provide that high level of, of explanation, um, you know, in a, in a rather simplistic way and in a way that, that offers clarity, then I think people are in a better position to decide for themselves whether that they feel that that actually makes sense. And, and that might even uh, promote more, more questions. And, you know, the whole conversation about fees really is something that can be done in just a few minutes, you know, maybe two, three, four, five minutes. Uh, we can have a complete conversation so that people walk away with, uh, with an understanding. The, because it is all about value and perceived value, but, but what people should be wary of when they're speaking with a, a, a potential financial advisor is when someone says, you know, I, I deliver the best returns. Okay. That's not, that's not anything that can be guaranteed. That's not anything that is based on any sort of fact. And the other thing is I have access to the best products. And so, you know, we've run into that Don over the years where we know that that's, that's a bias that some people uh, actually form as an opinion that's important to them. This is what I should be looking for. Like this, this person's offering the best products or, or the best rates of return and so on. And it's all about the relationship as we talk about many, many times, uh, how, how we're able to relate and understand people and focus on as, as every show we talk about, I think we focus on, on what the, the goals and priorities are 
and uh, and and some things that people may not think about as well, bringing those things to their attention so that uh, they have a much better off opportunity to accomplish what they they're setting out to do. And and I find that whole product conversation extremely shallow now. Is it, it's kind of funny that think that one firm will have the best product over another firm. Um, you know, it's it, that is definitely not the case. Everybody has access to the same type of product, right. so that whole product argument you is is very shallow, and it really does come as Gary mentioned to a trusting relationship with your advisor that will take you through the thick and thin of retirement. What grocery store has the best food? <laughs> exactly. You know, the, yes. the, ke- the ketchup tastes better when it comes from store A. Uh, Good we point, are, Scott. Yes. We are planning yes. your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. Don Fox. Dot, sorry, donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Disability tax credits. That's what you want to finish off with this week. Yes, and is this a, an area that I find is somewhat call missed or abused, depending which side you're looking at? Um, first of all, I find there's a stigma attached that, oh, I don't think I'm disabled. So people may not even want to apply for this disability tax credit. And what it is, it's a credit off your income tax. It's not a deduction, it's a credit. And it is worth $1,300 federally and about $700 um, provincially in Ontario for a grand total of tax savings every year of $2,040. So it is a very sizable credit and it will save you a lot of tax and it's something you would get every year. In fact, if you do qualify for it, which I will go through the the whole idea how to do this, but if you do qualify for it, it can go retroactive up to 10 years. So if you've had this disability for 10 years and your doctor confirms this or physician confirms this, you could get over $20,000 back from the government. Now, the idea of this is to help pay for a lot of the medical devices and things that you need through this credit. So there's a reason for this. And uh, but it's it's a little tricky, like who's eligible for this? And it really comes down to kind of a a combo. Um, You have to have a and I'll go option one, a marked restriction in a bunch of different categories. And what it means is that you're unable to do this activity or it takes three times longer of some of your similar age without the impairment, even with the the use of appropriate therapy, medication, or devices. Okay, Um, the restriction is present all or almost all the time, or at least 90% of the time, and the the restriction has lasted or is expected to last for a continual period of at least 12 months. That is considered a marked restriction. So if you have a marked restriction, you look at the different categories it could be in. Walking, okay? So if you uh, are walking three times slower than somebody else your age, it's been going on for it over 12 months or expected to continue, and, and it's there 90% or greater, that you just, it's always there, you can't walk um, very quick or because of pain, et cetera, 
then you would probably qualify for the disability tax credit. Mental functions, dressing, feeding, eliminating, which is bowel bladder functions, hearing, speaking, vision, and life-sustaining therapy. So those are all the categories. So you look at those seven categories and you say, okay, do I qualify for any of these? So if you don't quite qualify because you don't have a marked restriction in that, you have some, definitely you're, you're hindered, but not totally. You're not 90%, for example, or it's, it's not all the time. It maybe you only feel this half the time. Well, then you might combine two or more categories. And this is the cumulative effect of significant limitations. So if you have two or more of these impairments and those two, when you combine them, they almost generally have these all the time, one or the other, or all of them combined. And it does, and all the other, it takes you three times longer or it's of a similar age without the impairment. It affects your day-to-day living basically. So when you combine other two or more of these categories, you then may also qualify for the disability tax deduction. So how do you apply? Well, it's a two-part form, but it all starts with your medical practitioner. You mentioned this to your doctor or your optometrist, your nurse practitioner, you know, whatever the case is. But in most cases, it is your medical doctor. And you say, I think I qualify for the disability tax credit. This is the part that I find is interesting. I speak to one client and they say, yeah, my doctor filled in the forms, no problem. And we applied for this. Now, it truly is an application. It's up to government now to say yay or nay. Did I qualify or didn't I? So what I'm finding, though, is the doctors are often not feeling that they want to do this or they don't feel the disability is is hindering them enough. And I actually had one doctor say to a client of mine saying, well, if you can dress or feed yourself, you don't qualify. Hmm. And I said, well, they are correct. Um, on the cases, those are two of the seven or eight different things. But if in this case, this lady was not able to walk without a cane, and it's been going on for quite some time, and she was slow as a turtle. And that was one. So she only named off a couple. This particular woman would also qualify for the for the walking one. And so I have since sent an email to this doctor, because they are not necessarily experts in tax. They're experts in what they do, and they got to keep on top of their job all the time. And I'm, and they got a hard enough job to try to keep up on this too is another thing. So it's a two-part form. It can be done digitally, but it can also be done in a paper form. They have to fill in Part B. You have to, the uh, the person trying to file for this has to fill in Part A, and you send this to the government, and you wait. And usually it takes about eight weeks. And if you uh, They'll also, like I mentioned, go backwards and give you retroactive pay. And they'll get the saying, yes, you qualify, which you immediately can put on your this year's tax return. You do not have to requalify every year. Once you get it, you have it until perhaps the government says, I'd like to see you requalify. I've never seen that happen. But generally speaking, you have it for life. And if you do say it, they do not agree with you, which happens, doesn't mean you can't ask again. And so you could reapply. You can call and discuss this with the government and you can also file an objection. So just because they say no doesn't mean the government's is, is forever either. It's a, it's a very, you know, for those deserving, and I, I'd rather see you not qualify for the disability tax deduction because you are disabled. But if you are, then you should definitely claim for this. 
We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan have been here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. Another fabulous show, gentlemen. Thanks so much. Have a great week. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.